their paths crossed like two hot wires. We are just about the friendliest folks you'd ever want to meet. That's Bonnie. I'm sorry, I was looking for Maude. Everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves. You can't let the world judge you too much. That woman, she took my car. This is Bonnie and Maude, the film podcast, with Xenia Yarosh and Eleanor Kagan. So uh, here on Bonnie and Maude, we are not only our podcast, but we do a lot of live stuff too. And we've been doing the storytelling night in New York called Pause the Tape, which is a co-production with the great music podcast, The Soundtrack Series, which is hosted by Dana Rossi. And it is storytelling about music and film and moments where those two cross that are meaningful in our lives. Mm -hmm. So when you say pause the tape it's basically a reference to pausing videotapes but also audio tapes and like you know all those tapes that we've replayed over and over in our youth uh and maybe more recent years as well or maybe still have did you do the thing where you would always have either a vhs tape or an audio tape in uh the vcr or your you know radio with the tape deck and as soon as a song or a music video came on you would just like run and hit record you'd always miss the first couple of seconds yeah and i would listen to a ton of radio and record my favorite songs and make uh homemade mixes (laughs) and like the funny thing about those is uh it was also the time cell phones came around so i would carry uh, a tape player around town and multiple of those tapes would have recordings of that when your phone would vibrate. It always had sort of a beat to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was like a double recording of like the music, but also phones. And there it is now. So as sort of a, I don't know, a hors d'oeuvre between uh, regular podcast episodes of Bonnie and Maude, uh, we wanted to share with you guys uh, audio from one of the recent Pause the Tapes that we did. Um, this one we recorded actually on Valentine's Day. So the theme was crushes and love and heartbreak. Sex scenes. Sex scenes. Yeah, first kisses. We had four storytellers, uh, Ksenia and I, and also C.D. Hermelin and Isaac Oliver. And Dana Rossi, our co-host, did wonderful interstitials about the way music incorporates into Gilmore Girls. Um, so we uh, we cover a lot of topics. I talk about Can't Hardly Wait. CD talks about Weezer. Um, Isaac talks about Cruel Intentions. I talk about something that has been referenced way too many times on this podcast. Cool as ice. Mm, vanilla ice. Um, so yeah, let's dive right in. This, is, uh, this was recorded on February 14th at Videology in Brooklyn. And if you want to experience this for yourself, we have another Pause the Tape event April 30th at Videology in Brooklyn, and all the information can be found on our website, bonnieandmaude.com, or on facebook.com slash bonnieandmaude. If you live in the area, please join us. The theme is... Dance movies. Dance movies. Dirty dancing. What else? Center stage. Maybe a little bit of step up. We'll see. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, First up is you, Ksenia. Let's get to the story.
When I was in eighth grade, I fell for a bad boy. He wore an earring, had bleached tips in his hair, and possessed the kind of knowledgeable squint and handsiness that my mom found understandably unsettling. I've always appreciated that despite her discomfort, my mom never actually forbid me to see this guy. She just waited it out, and the relationship disintegrated on its own six weeks later. When I found out, he made out, and possibly more, with a girl in my home ec class. I was already interested in someone else by then, so the breakup was low impact. Whatever the case, this boy was my first kiss and was the first to give me a glimpse into what was to come later. He would hold my sweaty hand in the back of his father's car, or put his arm around my shoulder, or gently touch my non-existent 14-year-old hips when we would kiss in our shared apartment complex courtyard. But it never went further, and even though I knew he was more experienced, I never felt unsafe or pressured. We sat in my room with the door closed, and the potential of what could happen thrilled me. But I also realized that I was not ready to be physical with this person. There was a very strong desire in me for something, but it wasn't for sex. Closeness, maybe, or being heard. I hadn't given this boy much thought until a few years ago when I encountered another faux bad boy with ridiculous hair and a pierced ear. Vanilla ice in Cool <laughs> is Ice. A 1991 vanity project for the musician that is as ridiculous as it is visually stunning. The first or second time I watched this movie, it was a novelty. I giggled and pointed and let the avant-garde sets and cartoonishness of this dramatic love story wash over me. By now, I've seen it half a dozen times or more, and I realize that there is another element to this film that I really appreciate, not just as a bad film aficionado, but as a lady person who was once a 14-year-old girl. As much as this is a vanilla ice project, the perspective of the story is decidedly feminine. Yes, there are multiple situations that could have easily felt sinister. In this tale of a thuggish guy pursuing a nerdy honor roll student in bike shorts, Vanilla Ice breaks into his love interest cat's bedroom and drips ice into her mouth while she's slowly waking up, disoriented. He then takes her to a seemingly abandoned construction site where they run around, chat, and make out while scissoring, fully clothed, on his motorcycle. But every scene is shot with such glee and innocence that it gives me the kind of satisfaction that most rom-coms just can't. I know these characters aren't going to have sex, no matter how many suggestive words are scrawled on Vanilla's too hot for summer leather jacket. <laughs> and there's relief in that. Cool as Ice isn't about an adult relationship that has culminated in a night of passion. It's about two 20-something-year-old teenagers running around on a gloriously sunny day, <laughs> not knowing what to say, but getting an utter thrill from just being around each other. Better yet, it's an illustration of what an actively consensual relationship looks like. I think this is important in a world where the female character in many romantic films ending up with a male lead doesn't feel so much like a decision, but an inevitable plot point. Kat's character in Cool as Ice is fairly timid, but there are still key scenes that illustrate her choice of walking away from her dickish high school sweetheart and riding Ice's bike into the sunset. Not a euphemism. <laughs> Even 
if you've never seen the film, you've probably, you're probably familiar with this one insult spouted by Vanilla early in the film. Drop the zero and get with the hero. <laughs> it's directed at Kat's boyfriend, who throughout the story second guesses her decisions, tries to bully her into drinking and sex, calls her a slut, and generally acts like a tool who feels entitled by the fact that he considers himself a nice guy. Vanilla Ice doesn't pretend to be nice, but he also allows Kat to set the boundaries of their relationship, asks her questions about, her, about how she feels, and allows her to feel safe enough to do, as she says, something wild, which is basically just kissing this do doofy rapper who wandered through her town. This may surprise you, but I'm such a fan of this movie, I played it for my parents on a visit about a year ago. <laughs> They thought it was okay. It's going to be a while until I can share this weirdo part of my library with my son, who's making his premiere into the world this summer. But one day, when he's a tween, maybe, we can watch it together and he can see that, unlike the messages of so many fairy tales, girls aren't princesses who need to be rescued, but rather made, but rather made feel safe enough to go on an adventure with a hero instead. All right, so I'm gonna do a, like a running thing throughout this uh, tonight where we'll look at you know different clips of, of something uh, between each storyteller. And um, here's the thing, I can say that I miss things from my childhood and be completely justified in missing them because they just aren't things I can or that I need to do anymore. I miss taping songs off the radio. I miss the sound and feel of turning individual pages of a phone book. I miss waiting up all night watching MTV just to see a certain nine minute long Guns N' Roses video. <laughs> and I miss watching Kissing on TV. Now obviously, I can still watch Kissing on TV, but there was something about doing that as a kid when you had never kissed anyone and knew nothing about anything because you were eight. That's what I miss, when it was new, so it was sexy times sexy. And even though you had never even so much as high-fived a boy yet, <laughs> when you watched two characters you were completely invested in kiss on TV, you could totally imagine that scenario in your own life. The lean-in, the, the pre-kiss swallow and dip of the guy's Adam's apple. <laughs> the running of hands around necks and waists, the scene would play out on TV and then you'd record it in your head so that in bed later that night, you'd fall asleep to that exact same scene on repeat, only subbing in for Winnie Cooper and Kevin Arnold was you and Jason Stamatis. You not only could see it, you could feel it all over at its most powerful because whatever it was, was still almost entirely a mystery to you, or at least it was to me. TV is when is where I went to feel everything about kissing without actually having to, or getting to, kiss someone. TV had all the best kissing. But now I'm an adult, and I've, I've done the whole bit, and watching kissing on TV doesn't quite weigh the same as it used to, of course. It takes a special kind of show with a special combination of characters at a special level of intrigue and attractiveness to bring me to a simmer when I see it on TV now. A show like that comes along rarely, but every so often it does. And right now that show is Gilmore Girls. <laughs> 
Yes. What makes Gilmore Girls special on the whole, beyond kissing, like forget about kissing for a minute, is how well this show uses music in general, beautifully and deliberately. Amy Sherman Palladino, uh, the creator of Gilmore Girls, did not use a music supervisor on this show. She and her husband, who was also a producer on the show, they wanted to hand pick every piece of music that went into the show for a list of reasons. And she is a master of the art of using music that serves the story, that adds to the story, but doesn't reiterate or, or make a joke of the story. And in a 2010 interview with Outsmart, she went so far as to say, because I think music on television is just uniformly dreadful. It is mundane, it says nothing. They use it to say, here's a funny moment, like everyone's retarded, you know? <laughs> it's not an extension of the drama it's a distraction. It's like, I'll distract you so you won't know how shitty this show is. And she's mostly right. Not when it came to Freaks and Geeks, but for like a lot of other stuff. But not on Gilmore Girls either. On Gilmore Girls, the music acts more like an additional set piece or costume piece than just sound filler thrown in to cover silence or manipulate your emotions. Even in the very first episode, okay, uh, which was in the year 2000, one of the songs they use over a scene is I Try by Macy Gray. My favorite thing about them using I Try by Macy Gray in a show filmed in 2000 that took place in 2000 was to tell future watchers of the show, perhaps our new alien overlords when we are eventually attacked and dominated, that this episode and this moment in this episode most definitely took place in the year 2000 and not a minute later. <laughs> We get a very specific sense of time and place just by using that very specific song. But I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, if, you, if I go on about like, oh, and then there's this moment, we'll be here for four hours, we can't do that. I'm getting sidetracked, I can't. The show uses music like a champ, okay? And some of the finest examples of this are in the way they score kissing. Let's look at the first one, shall we? You gonna smoke that or mind meld with it? Depends. Okay, let's forget for a moment that leaning against a gas pump is the worst place to smoke a cigarette. <laughs> now, earlier in the episode, they almost kiss in Luke's apartment, uh, but then they're interrupted when Luke bursts in the room. And a quick sidebar here, Eleanor would like me to mention uh, that pretty much all of the kissing in Gilmore Girls is eventually somehow interrupted. Um, this is the like, gotta go show, and she is absolutely 100% correct on that. But, so because we know that they were interrupted earlier, this is the big payoff. So, tell me, what's your decision about smoking that, depending on? What's gonna happen? When? Now? Like, Rory puts it out there, at, uh, what she says, she asks, you know, what smoking that cigarette is gonna depend on. Not the almost certain explosion at this gas station if he lights up near a pump, but rather that if he smokes, he'll have unkissable cowboy mouth. But no, he's not eating that onion and we knew it was gonna happen. He grabs, not her waist, but I don't know if you saw, he teases her out with the sweater on her waist, just pulls her over to it. And then they kiss, okay, they break for a little bit. I'm glad you didn't smoke it. And they go back and he almost cradles her face with the cigarette in hand. <laughs> Which is actually a pretty perfect character detail, not only for like the town hooligan, but for any teenager still trying to figure out like where your hands go when you're doing sexy stuff. The song playing, if you heard in the beginning, was uh, XTC's Then She Appeared. Now, it's not every song that references a type of hat visible on the seal of the United States Senate. 
or Marie Celeste, uh, the merchant brigantine found abandoned in the middle of the ocean in 1872 for no reason whatsoever, but this song does reference those things. And unlike the plain, the too straightforward, she's got a way about her, or she's not there, or close but not quite right, here she comes now, Velvet Underground. This, with all its references to 19th century boats and, and William Henry Ta Fox Talbot, is the perfect she song to reference someone like Rory and to kiss someone like Rory, because Rory is exceptionally smart, and she would not have to Google all of those references like I did. <laughs> Coming up next, we have C.D. Hermelin, who is better known as... The roving typist. Yeah, he uh, posts up in nice weather on the High Line with a typewriter and will write you a story. He will improvise on the spot mm -hmm. and you get to keep the story and it's amazing. Yeah, and so uh, he, you know, embodies sort of one of the themes of this night, which I think is going back to our youth and going back to high school when particular movies and songs carried all of the meaning, or we, we heaped on to those songs and movies all of the meaning of our young lives. I love that song. Okay. So I, uh, I fell in love with Weezer before I fell in love with any girl. Um, before Weezer, my favorite music was uh, Counting Blue Cars by Dishwalla. Um, the cleaned up version of, the, of Grease Lightning. The brass band break in the middle of Yellow Submarine by the Beatles. And uh, the entire output of the Aquabats, uh, which you just heard, which is a ska band that pretends to be superheroes fighting evil, and sometimes they sing songs about chicken wings. So <laughs> I was poised and, um, and ready for a personal music revolution. Uh, Weezer wasn't love at first sight, though. Uh, the first time I heard them, I was too young and naive, and I thought they had a disappointing lack of horns or... <laughs> References to activities I enjoyed, like counting blue cars <laughs> or pretending to be in a submarine. <laughs> but the light shone through eventually, and thanks to an incredibly well-curated Napster mix CD uh, that alternated between the natural track listing of Weezer's Blue Album and then mixed in such punk and ska greats as No Effects, Slow Gherkin, MXPX, and Less Than Jake. It was like a dam breaking, like the birth of Christ for the Western understanding of time, my life bifurcated on the moment between it not being a Weezer fan and then accepting them into my heart. <laughs> so I was 14 and they were my first. I bought Weezer t-shirts and a Weezer lunchbox and learned Weezer songs on guitar, songs I would eventually play in a Weezer cover band that developed into a band that played songs that sounded a lot like Weezer songs. <laughs> I joined Weezer's online message board community and commented endlessly on Weezer lyrics and contributed very earnestly to conspiracy theories about what happened to Jason Cropper, the guitarist who played the finger pick riffs on the Blue Album, but never went on tour. <laughs> I even harbored a desire to write and perhaps star in, I mean, who knows if someone asked me. I mean, sure. A Weezer jukebox musical about a guy named Jonas who just wants his band to make it. <laughs> and if any of you get the Jonas reference, you're right along with me here. Okay. <laughs> so being a fan, being like a true blue diva Tay of something is perhaps the 
one of the greatest relationships that one can enter into at any stage of your life. It demands very little, just a liberal helping of blind devotion and a heart and mind working in tandem to discover and retain as much information as possible about something, which uh, sounds like a lot, but fandom is a ticket uh, to another dimension of like-minded beings, folks that wake up in the morning to the same songs, you know, who, whose Internet Explorer homepage is also Weezer.com. <laughs> who can delight in minutia like the fact that Scott Schreiner, Weezer's current bassist, played bass in Vanilla Ice's touring band. <laughs> but the best thing about belonging to a group of fans are moments like the first day of high school sophomore year when a girl named Arielle came through the door with chestnut hair and a sly, closed-lipped smile wearing a light blue Weezer t-shirt featuring two dancing girls drawn by Adrian Tumin, Tomine. The Weezer shirt showed unequivocally that she was a kindred spirit. We were linked. It was the perfect way to start a conversation for a guy like me who embodies the definition of gawky. So you like Weezer? She did. She knew lots and lots of things about Weezer, stuff I didn't know, like B-sides and the story of Michael and Carly, two fans who were themselves immortalized in a B-side. They were the voices of the girls in the sweater song and started the very first Weezer fan club. On their way to a Weezer show in 1995, they died in a car accident. Ariel told me the story as I walked her home one day, and it felt like she was telling me a secret. We even graduated to topics that uh, weren't Weezer. We both liked Stephen King and thought the Southern California suburbia where we grew up was like totally fake. <laughs> we bonded over the difficulty of our AP classes and started a notebook that we passed over the course of the day. She got a, a boyfriend, a drummer in the school jazz band where she played saxophone. I got myself a girlfriend that wasn't her. Uh, and we broke up and got back together a lot. Anyway, that sophomore year was a strange one. It's really surprisingly well-documented. For some reason, I had forgotten that my first instinct online, beyond the Weezer message boards and sharing Harry Potter fan theories, <laughs> was to bear all in an anonymous online space. I journaled under many different names, different publishing platforms. In the background of all of this uh, was one of the most turbulent and sad episodes of my high school life. I was being bullied be because a large part of the student body at my high school took my bowling and Hawaiian button-up shirt collection and general awkwardness as a sure sign of homosexuality. I was chased home from school daily and hit in the back with D batteries, which is the most expensive and largest of all the batteries. <laughs> and my school's administration weirdly didn't want to do anything about it. Looking back and reading all of the live journaling and dead journaling and regular journaling, I realized that I just never wrote a word about it. I've written about other things, and I might have written about it in the journal I kept with Ariel, but I can't remember what was in there. I did write about Weezer, though. And Weezer led me onward to other bands, like Ozma and OK Go and Jets to Brazil and Jimmy Eat World and Rooney and the White Stripes and Phantom Planet and the Hives and the Smiths. I mean, it's another thing that fandom creates, a space to get lost in. An entire world of liner notes and bands that sound like Radiohead, but they're like mixed with Joy Division. <laughs> Record store debates and album rankings. And, and inside that world, there's a lot of talk about regretting not going after the girl. In one of my bouts of singlehood, after watching Amelie with Arielle at her place and talking about how her boyfriend thought school dances were stupid, I hatched a plan. 
As a member of our school student government, I decided that the best way to show my love and devotion to Ariel was to get the winter formal named after a Weezer song and somehow convince her that it wouldn't be cheating on her boyfriend to come with me to the dance. In this, I was actually successful. <laughs> Ariel decided to go to the dance with me. Her drummer boyfriend decided I was harmless. And I had done an okay job in convincing myself my actions were honorable and not a ploy to steal her away. <laughs> At the winter formal naming meeting, which is a real thing that happened, I gave an impassioned speech in favor of only in dreams. Never mentioning it was a Weezer song. It beat out, Heaven is a place on earth. <laughs> yeah. To this day, I'm very proud of this accomplishment. It's an odd footnote in my high school history. The only in dreams winter formal invitations were two clear pieces uh, of plastic bound together around blue and silver glitter stars. The invitation script was silver. I still have mine tucked into my sophomore yearbook. The only problem was, RL's boyfriend decided a dance named after a Weezer song couldn't be all bad. So they decided to go together, leaving me to ask my ex-girlfriend to go with me. At the dance, they played mostly music that was not Weezer, 50 Cent, I'm sure. Beyonce, because some things never change. <laughs> Ariel and her boyfriend never made it. They got into a fender bender instead. I danced with my ex-girlfriend, who uh, became my girlfriend again not long after, for the fourth or, or fifth time. However, they did play only in dreams. Uh, it must have been the DJ's decision because I don't think anyone in the student government actually listened to it considering it felt jarringly out of place played over the announcement of winter formal court. <laughs> I laughed a lot, but anyway, after sophomore year, uh, Ariel disappeared sort of literally. Uh, even her drummer boyfriend didn't know where she'd gotten to. I'm not in contact with her now. But when I listen to Weezer, it's not her that I think of, or not just her, it's, it's all of it, all of the music that I got to listen to because this band came along and I fell in love with them and they saved me from the perils of ska music and, <laughs> and they gave me solace when I needed it the most. Thank you. The next story is told by you, Eleanor. Yep, that's true. I like I approach the story with just utter embarrassment because in it, as you will hear, I quote liberally out of my childhood journals. And now I've talked about the fact that I was an avid journaler for much of my life, but I've never shared them with anybody, let alone a room of strangers recorded in public <laughs> and now to you guys. So this, <laughs> I was like mortified about the fact that I was about to do this. Um, <laughs> but it also set you free. I know. I felt like it was a bit of an, ex like, a, like a teenage exorcism in the best way possible. <laughs> it was inevitable. The scent of Gap Dream perfume always reminded me of the fate of unrequited love. Isn't that how love in the time of cholera starts? I don't know. I was supposed to be reading it for English class, but that smell was distracting me. It wafted over from the group of girls, my friends, on a good day, as they surrounded the boy I longed for. 
Taylor Lewis. As a kid, I had many, many crushes. At age five, my first ever crush was on a cartoon bear, Kit from Tailspin. <laughs> Remember that show? Uh, one day I got so angry after my mom made me turn the show off that I ran up to my room, ripped his picture out of a coloring book, tore it to shreds, and threw them into an air vent. I instantly regretted this, but I moved on pretty quickly. By junior high, I lived in two concurrent states, of longing and of embarrassment. I have fairly translucent skin on my face, which means you can see the blue veins all around my eyes. And I had a crush on this boy in my class with red hair who once told me that he'd never go out with somebody who has vampire eyes. I got hips by like age seven, so I still bought low-rise jeans uh, with a snap-up fly, which is a terrible idea because if you sit down too fast, they just burst open. <laughs> and that happened often in front of people whose opinions I valued deeply. Um, and there was also the time where I wore a backless shirt to a school dance, and after I danced with the boy that I liked, word traveled fast that I was sweaty and gross. It was June, I could not help it, uh, but weirdly their cruelty helped me get over them. Taylor was different. He was never mean to me, so of course my crush lasted fucking forever. <laughs> As a kid, I was also very introspective and wrote in my journal constantly. I only wrote about three things. Friends, though at that point everyone was basically a frenemy. Boys and music. I have volumes and volumes cataloging in excruciating detail the exact song I was listening to at any given moment. Late 90s alternative R&B and rap, of course. And uh, plus who everybody liked, who dated who, who was in a fight with who, and what all of this meant for me specifically. These entries have never seen the light of day and were honestly kind of painful to revisit. I have the sick need to share some of them with you now. <laughs> March 4th, 1998. I die over Taylor 24-7, but sniff, we're not even friends, just acquaintances. I know I have to be more social, but it's freaking not that easy. <laughs> Oh, Been Around the World by Puffy and Mace just came on the radio. <laughs> October 13th, 1998. I think me and Taylor are getting to be friends. Now, I realize I love him. <laughs> well, maybe not love, I, but I really like him. He's like the perfect guy. Nice, funny, sense of humor, and to top it all off, so fine. <laughs> A fox. Fine with a capital F. <laughs> October 21st, 1998. I sound so dorky. I really hope no one ever reads this. <laughs> the truth is, I really don't think I know what love is, let alone love someone. I'm in like, but... <laughs> But for a while, I was trying to make myself not like him anymore. But then I decided, screw that. Anyway, I'm just gonna try to lay off of him and be my total self again. Cause sometimes I'm not even in like, just buds. <laughs> November 20th, 1998. I used to be so sad because me and Taylor hardly knew each other. Now, I guess we're what the dictionary would call friends. <laughs> 
really glad we're friends because he's a really fun person and funny too and so hot. Oh yeah, yesterday in art class we were making up dreams for each other, but I'm tired so I'll tell you about it tomorrow. <laughs> I never wrote about it. <laughs> November 29th, 1998. This is nine days later. I've been thinking, this Taylor thing is really weird. It seems like sometimes I don't feel like I like him anymore. At the beginning of this year, I was totally love-struck by him. I like couldn't stand the weekends when I didn't see him. I mean, gosh, he's a person too. I'm making it seem like Taylor is some superficial character dream guy. It's crazy. Don't get me wrong, I still totally like him and think he's cool and hot, but I'm just gonna let, I'm not gonna let myself get sucked into him. I saw Can't Hardly Wait, the movie about a post-graduation party. It's so good. <laughs> if you guys don't know, Can't Hardly Wait is this late 90s teen movie that takes place more or less entirely at a post-high school graduation party and follows a bunch of characters from different social casts as their stories intertwine, like a low-rent Robert Altman movie with a wardrobe from Delia's. <laughs> This movie had crushed storylines I related to. Ethan Embry plays Preston, whose character traits were liking Kurt Vonnegut, believing in fate, and pining for Jennifer Love Hewitt, whose only character trait was that she sighed a lot. <laughs> Jenna Elfman's character longs for Scott Baio. The song Farther Down by Matthew Sweet plays the soundtrack to their longing, and it became the soundtrack for mine too. But I longed not for Preston, but for Kenny Fisher, played by Seth Green. <laughs> How can I describe him? Oh God. Other than as this movie's Iggy Azalea. <laughs> a white, suburban, sex-obsessed virgin whose appropriation of the era's black stereotypes is for another talk. And then the sarcastic loner, Denise, calls him out on his posturing. And at some point in the movie, the two of them accidentally got locked into a bathroom. They fight, they make up, and guess what? They have sex. I could not yet wrap my mind around any of the Rachel things going on in that movie. I was more into the sex parts. And in many ways, their storyline was kind of sweet. November 29th, 1998. I think that would be, well, cool but fun but weird if I got stuck in the bathroom with somebody. Preferably you know who. <laughs> that would just be really strange. But I wish that would happen. Suddenly, I was obsessed with getting stuck somewhere alone with Taylor. If only he were forced to spend enough time with me in small confines where he couldn't escape, he would realize that he loved me too. <laughs> I set about trying to invent ways to get him alone. When my best friend threw a holiday party at her house, I tried to get Taylor to go down to her basement where all the Halloween costumes were kept with the allure of playing dress up, but our friend Brian insisted on coming too. So we held a wedding slash fashion show, and well, we weren't entirely alone, but I was elated. A few weeks later, Taylor and I and my best friend hung out at the Water Tower Mall for like seven hours and laughed hysterically while riding the express elevator up and down and up and down. We were 12. We hadn't discovered as much as cigarettes yet. Again, enclosed space, but we weren't alone. Finally, we went to our friend Rachel's bat mitzvah, and while everyone else was playing Coke and Pepsi, he and I went off to explore the banquet halls. In an empty room, with the door closed, I finally got him alone. My heart raced, I felt like something was about to happen, and even he seemed a little nervous. And then he confessed something to me. He was thinking about asking out my best friend. He said he really felt like he could trust me as a friend. Later that night, 
He drew a martini glass on my hand. I wrote power person on his. I have no idea why. <laughs> and the next day, he would tell another girl in our class that he thought he and I were closer than ever. December 20th, 1998. I really didn't know what to think. I kind of felt like a delicate glass window that had just been shattered to pieces. <laughs> it was the first and perhaps the most significant friend zoning of my life. This is the life cycle of a crush. It's there until you have a reason to move on. My crush on Taylor did not immediately fade, but it was a start. We still hung out all the time at the Water Tower Mall and listened to CDs at Sam Goody and fucked around with all the electronics and sharper image and ate tons of candy at FAO Schweetz. It was fine, it was fine. Yearning for impossible situations and fictional people, wishing for the Kenny Fishers of the world to be locked in a bathroom with me, meant never being rejected. I now know that it was not really all the sex having and can't hardly wait that fascinated me, but it was this theme of longing that runs through the entire movie that spoke to me the most. The movie knew how I felt, so I wasn't alone. Writing out Matthew's sweet lyrics in my journal meant finding my feelings in someone else's words, so I didn't feel alone. And in the grand scheme of things, it was never really about Taylor. I was on the road to accepting that you can't will somebody's feelings in and out of existence, especially your own, but you can try. February 18th, 1999. About Taylor. I don't know if I like him or not. This is a twisted world. <laughs> well, I'm feeling really positive now about myself. Sure, if I got a BF, it would be great, but I don't need my life to revolve around it. Peace out. to more uh, more Gilmore girls let's uh let's let's kiss more this whole thing the whole charade the fake flyer and everything it was too much Lane it's fine and that flyer I've gotten like three other calls for paying gigs I should be paying you a commission oh that's not necessary and check it out 20 bucks wow she liked you We'll put it towards our first real date. Really? After all this, the marathon hymns, the weak punch, the Krabby Koreans, you still want to go out on a date with me? Let's first focus on the kissing trope that was used in this scene. There are many commonly used kissing tropes throughout popular television. The, we were fighting, now we're kissing. The, it's raining and we're kissing. The, we were fighting in the rain and now we're kissing, but it's raining, so we're kissing in the rain. Uh, Lila Garrity and Tim Riggins on Friday Night Lights only. Um, and this one is the stop babbling and kiss me. 
And what's great about this song for this kiss is that the song is hinted at earlier in the episode. Dave plays the first seven or so notes during Lane's mother's like tofurkey Thanksgiving before launching into yet another religious hymn because that's what her mother had hired him to do was play religious hymns all day and he just kind of sneaks in those notes. And of course he does, of course he plays that. The Man Who Sold the World is on a very specific list of songs that all teenage boys between 1973 and 2000 know the first six or seven notes to and play on a loop at parties and in study hall right along with Enter Sandman, Come As You Are, Sweet Child of Mine, and the Jimi Hendrix Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> and in the scene where Dave first plucks those notes during Mrs. Kim's religious gathering, it's likely that the only other person in the room who would know the song as The Man Who Sold the World would be Lane. So in that scene, it was a, a sexy, almost dangerous little secret between them. And so that when they kiss, in, in this scene that we just saw, it's that song again as a throwback so that we too can remember the sexiness of that secret that they shared before. And even though this song itself is about like multiple facets to your personality or figuring out every part of yourself, blah, blah, there is something kind of dangerous, very, I think, unpure thoughts of you in those first seven notes. And also, I think it's a lot like the, the Chekhov rule uh, for theater about like if a gun is shown in act one, it must be fired by act three. And if the man who sold the world is played as a private joke between two lovers in act one, they must suck face to it by act three. <laughs> All right. go but I'm gonna call you tomorrow so our final storyteller for this show uh, is Isaac Oliver he's a hilarious writer and he actually has a book of essays coming out called intimacy idiot and I highly recommend you pull out your phone and go to Google and look at the cover of this book because it is so perfect it's like a Barbie hanging out butt first of a wall, and it's just, oh, I love it. He also does some one-man shows, and I, I would recommend following him on Twitter in order to keep up with all his performances. He's he's really fun to watch and listen to. Uh, yeah, it was such an honor to have him on the show. And he talked about a particular scene in Cruel Intentions. Um, of course, you remember the Ryan Phillippe, Reese Witherspoon, Sarah Michelle Gellar uh, epic tale of uh, lust and lies <laughs> mm -hmm. and cocaine. And um, so he showed the scene uh, as a clip and kind of talked throughout it. So there are specific references to the scene as it's happening, but uh, luckily it's on YouTube. And so if you want to sort of follow along, you can pull it up. It's the scene where uh, Reese Witherspoon is coming up the escalator in the train station and he's waiting at the top. If you just queue up that scene uh, and watch it as you're listening to him talk about it, uh, he will sort of make some references to that. So just as a visual thing to not throw you off too much. We'll link to it in our show notes. But yeah, I think if you Google elevate <laughs> if you google escalator scene cruel intentions uh you're gonna find it pretty easily yeah and maybe you you had a you know erotic youthful moment to the scene as well <laughs> uh hi thanks for having me um i was thinking earlier today that really the sex scene i should be talking about i've been thinking about lately is that viking river cruise ad 
that they show on PBS before every great British baking show? <laughs> Brooklyn, are you not watching the great British baking show? <laughs> All right, watch the great British baking show, it's great. Not since The Wire. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> My best friend in elementary and middle school taught me how to jerk off. <laughs> He's essentially the reason I don't write more. Uh, <laughs> I was over at his house one afternoon after school. His parents were both tenured at a local college and never home. On their computer, he brought up a topless picture of Jenny McCarthy and eagerly turned to me for a reaction. I was already certain that Jenny McCarthy and her ilk weren't going to take because of, you know, Sully on Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. Uh, Have you ever masturbated? My friend asked. No, never, I said. It's fun, it feels really good, he replied. Do you mind? He unzipped his khakis, pulled out his dick, and slowly began to demonstrate. It felt impolite to not, in turn, pull out mine, so I did, and, and I tried to replicate his movements. Uh, we didn't say a word, he an angular science nerd, and I a coarse-haired theater wisp. Uh, but he was assured and authoritative, a gentle guide who led by example, an impression currently shared by his students on Rate My Professor. <laughs> we jerked off together all the time after that. We dropped back and trousers on opposing sides of whoever's room we were in, and we'd settle and silently busy ourselves, or we'd sit parallel in his parents' desk chairs, and fast-forwarding to and continually rewinding sex scenes in movies. Remember that lunatic Scientologist Kelly Preston just bouncing on fellow lunatic Scientologist Tom Cruise's thetany dick and Jerry Maguire? You know, the scene where she's like, never stop fucking me! <laughs> and, and there's like that, that little dog is watching like we were the little dog uh, so I took what I learned from him and I brought it home I <laughs> snuck to the basement every night stayed up for hours just jerking myself senseless to truly whatever we had in the house <laughs> You know how some people can just like whip up a dinner with whatever's left in the fridge? Like, that's like me and jerking off. Like, I can just whip something up. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then Ryan Philippe happened to me. Uh, do you remember where you were when you first saw Ryan Philippe's face? Because I do, I do. It was at a Halloween party in 1990, and uh, we, we were all half watching I Know What You Did Last Summer, when suddenly onto the screen he came, a cherub-curled, cobblestone-stomached miracle. It was like when people think they see Jesus in a piece of toast, you know, I was just like. I mean, no one looked like him. No one. 
I'd been up until then slumming it, jerking to that smug incense salesman, Jared Leto, but... <laughs> no more. No more. <laughs> Ryan Philippe, pouty-lipped patron saint, justified and fortified my gayness. I saw him and I was like, oh, that's what I do it for. That's why I put in the long hours. <laughs> we should roll the clip. We should start the clip. Can you pause it, actually? I'm so sorry. <laughs> I had an immediate thought. I, w I was in the basement with this movie, with Cruel Intentions, every night. And yes, this is not the most titillating scene in the movie. There's his butt in the shower, his chest in the bed, his fingers in the vampire slayer, but this was one... <laughs> this was the scene that I watched again and again, late at night, like just three in the morning, in the basement, just solitary with this scene. And I don't know, it just, it just, it fucked me up because I, every time I ride a goddamn escalator now, I'm just like. <laughs> and, <laughs> and because, I don't know. We can keep going. <laughs> Academy Award winner. Well, I'm in love. Not Academy Award winner. <laughs> oh, can we pause it one more time? Thanks, Eleanor. I just like this is like prime Ryan and Reese time. Like they they were married. Remember when they were married and we all thought they were like not trashy people. <laughs> At that time, they were like blonde bombshells, both of them, and they were so sweet. Like, you know, they were they were like our Brad and Angelina before Brangelina. They were like, you know, Reese and Ryan, or like Reason, you know, I don't know. Um, <laughs> we can keep going. <laughs> It. <laughs> just that, just that, are you okay? I, it, I have to, it just, it just, it fucked me up. Like, I, I, I don't know why I now fantasize about someone during sex being like, are you okay? <laughs> but, but that is now, it's like what I want. And I'm like, what, what level of distress do I need to like be in? I don't know, I don't know. It just, uh... <sighs> and this song, this song, you know, like we, we, were, we were like a sting and a, like a contempo Christian music household. So I didn't hear many like moody piano songs. So like when this came out, I was like, oh my God, music can be like this. So I like bought the sheet music. I learned how to play it and I'm like playing it ad nauseum and you know, and singing, I'm like, I'm ready. <laughs> And my parents are like reading the newspaper and just like enduring, you know, just like, just like here, just <laughs> like our son, Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, this, this, this was a really emotional scene for me. We can, we can, we, we can play it out now. I'll stop interrupting. 
Did you guys see Wild? <laughs> Just like really uncomfortable. It's like standing here for so long. <laughs> it's better in a basement. All right, we can stop it now. He puts her in the car. He's changed. Uh, so, <laughs> I brought this, I brought this to my friend, and we watched it together, and you don't really see much of Reese Witherspoon in that scene, but I still was like, yeah, Reese Witherspoon, and we like would watch, you know, and we'd like jerk, and anyway. Uh, but we never touched, my friend and I, we never touched, and honestly, you know, it never occurred to me to like try and make any use of the other dick in the room. You know, like it, it, it really didn't. Uh, it was always what we were watching together, you know, what, what was on the screen. We were merely separate drivers, you know, just caravanning towards the same destination, you know? Maybe a year or so later I told him I was gay. Uh, we were walking by a creek because I wanted my coming out to be as dramatic as possible. Uh, <laughs> I could say one of three things, he replied, that I'm okay with it, that I'm not okay with it, or that I'm gay too and I think I might be in love with you. <laughs> and I was like, ha ha, okay, and then, and then we just like kept walking and like didn't talk about it ever again. Uh, and you know, it's not until now, years later, when I was sort of you know, writing some of this for, for the book that I, I sat there and I was like, oh my god. Was he actually like being serious and like going out on a huge limb with me and I was just like so self-involved and like just just you know not even thinking about real three-dimensional people that I just was like Pff. and uh, you know the thought that he could have cared for me in that way or desired me in that way never even occurred to me you know with, with Philippe on the screen you know what what on earth could he want from me you know uh, and this guy you know he had, he had a thick Polish dick real smarts <laughs> And now he has a PhD and a wife, so, you know, I don't blame him for ignoring my Facebook friend request. Uh, and looking back, you know, the, the image of me as like, a, like an early teen boy just like sitting at the piano, like somberly playing that like dirge and being like, I am ready, I am ready. It's just so funny because at the moment I was like, I am ready. I am but I look back and I'm like, you were not, like, I look at today and I'm like, you're not fucking ready. Like, you're not, <laughs> you're not ready. And, and, you know, the funny, like, men, men have waited for me at places, sure. But, like, unfortunately, I'm only looking for them at the top of escalators. So, thanks. All right. <laughs> I am obsessed with everything Dana Rossi, our wonderful co-host and host of the soundtrack series, said about Gilmore Girls because she's so spot on. And Gilmore Girls has about 800 more incredible pertinent music moments that uh, we did not touch on. But we would love to hear what your favorite ones are. So uh, email us at bonnieandmaud at gmail.com. And definitely check out SoundtrackSeries.com or pull up the show on your favorite podcasting app um, because Dana is just 
kind of amazing at finding, you know, just these perfect moments of music and cinema and um, has an interesting variety of guests on her show all the time. We love you, Dana. Um, and see us at the next Pause the Tape, April 30th at Videology in Brooklyn at 7.30 p.m. The theme is dance movies, and this is a continuing series, so if you can't make it to that one, there will be more to come. Visit us at bonnieandmod.com or facebook.com slash bonnieandmod, where we will post info about all of our live events and other stuff that we have going on. For Bonnie and Mod, I'm Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Ksenia Yurosh. Thanks for listening, guys. Symphony